0: Podcast. My name is Rebecca Meidinger. It is awesome to be here with you today. Today we are diving into the fifth session of our Spirit Life Bible Study that is based on Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 26 through 30 today. As we began, I would like you to think about a time when you were trying to lift something really heavy and there was somebody near you who was available to help you who is much stronger than you. And perhaps that person stood aside, knowing full well that you needed help, but waiting for you to ask for help. Oftentimes, I'll come home from Costco with a bag of, like, a 40-pound bag of dog food, and we have this big, large Tupperware dog food canister thing that we pour our dog food into. And sometimes, I'll be smart, and I'll ask my husband to do it for me. My husband is very strong, way stronger than me. And sometimes I will not be smart, And even if Paul is sitting in the living room or sitting in the kitchen or somewhere nearby in the house, sometimes I'll be foolish and I will cut open the top of the dog bag or the dog food bag and I will try to dump it into the canister, but it's like 40 pounds. And so for me to even lift up the bag and turn it upside down to dump it out and to aim it properly It's very difficult, and occasionally if I'm doing this, I will spill dog food all over the floor, and my husband might be nearby watching me, and he'll say, you know, um, I'm right here. (laughs) I could help you, and then depending on my mood, I might be really crabby, and I might be, well, then come do it, or I might be like, I'm sorry, I should have asked you to help me. The thing is he's there and he's available and it's only out of my stubbornness that I in the first place ever think that I should do it by myself. Why would I try to do it by myself? I don't need to prove anything to anybody. He can do it better. He can do it easily. He'll he'll often say to me, Rebecca, it's not heavy to me. Just ask me to do it. It's very easy for me. And I'll be like, oh, well, okay, well, I just thought I would do it myself today. Oh, <laughs> well, that's silly. That's silly. We have in our lives a heavy burden of suffering and sin that we have been looking at in Romans chapter 8, And in chapter 7 specifically, which we didn't go through, but we talked about it briefly at the beginning, that Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7 his own internal struggle with sin and how it's heavy and burdensome. And then in chapter 8, like last week we just got done talking about the burden of our suffering and the groaning of our suffering. This is heavy. This world is heavy. There is suffering, there is hardship, there is frustration, and it is a heavy burden. And in romans chapter 8 verse 26 paul is going to tell us today he says likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness now the reason for the likewise there is that last week we ended our time with verses 24 and 25 looking at the hope we have in christ's return the sure and certain absolute hope we have in the return of Christ, and that is what gives us strength and encouragement as we groan and suffer in this world. And then he's going to hop into verse 26 saying, Likewise, in addition to this hope that we have in the return of Christ, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And the word helps in Greek is this very, very long word and I'm not gonna pronounce it well, but it's Sinan Tilam Banatai. And it's a rich word that pictures someone helping carry, helping another person carry a heavy load. The spirit wants to help us carry our heavy load. And sometimes when we try to do everything by ourselves and ignore the indwelling Holy Spirit inside of us, we're like me when I haul in this 40-pound bag of dog food into my house and I try to do it myself, and then spill it all over the floor. When my husband is right there thinking, Rebecca, just wait till I am available and I will help you. When we ignore the indwelling Holy Spirit, it's too much for us. And he wants to help us carry our heavy load. He desires to help us carry the heavy load. One of the ways in which the Holy Spirit helps us carry that heavy load is explained further on in this verse as we go on in verse 26 paul writes for we do not even know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words so the word intercedes means to go between two parties in this context it would be between us and god the father that the spirit intercedes he he's an in, in between he he prays on our behalf to God the Father. So it's not that we need him to go in between us, but he does it for us. He when when we can't pray, when we don't have the words to pray, perhaps it's because our suffering is so deep that we just cannot muster up the energy to pray. Perhaps it's that we have prayed about something like a scenario in our lives for so long and we feel like nothing is coming from it that we have grown weary of praying and we just feel like we're out of words because we're just so tired of it Another possibility is that we're just confused. Like maybe we have this situation going on in our lives. It could be anything, it could be about at work, it could be about an illness, it could be about decisions a child is making, it could be about you trying to discern in your life if you should move or take a new job or continue a relationship. So many scenarios, any scenario, that you just feel like I don't know how to pray about this. I'm confused. I don't know what to pray for. I don't know if I should pray in this direction or pray in this direction. When we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He groans alongside of us. Last week we looked at this word groans, (stenazo) and we learned that creation groans, And we learned that we groan and we learned that Jesus himself groans. And now we see here that the Holy Spirit is groaning as well. The world is not as it should be. There is brokenness here that is too heavy for us to carry. We were not designed for this brokenness. Remember, we were designed and created for Eden. And now we live in this world that is fallen and broken and suffering, and we weren't made for this. It's too heavy. And so the Holy Spirit indwells us, prays for us, helps us carry the weight of this world, and groans alongside us. Now, here's a really beautiful scripture verse. In verse 27, it says, And he who searches hearts... Now that is God the Father. And I love this, just the the reference that God the Father is the one who searches hearts. Whose heart does he search? My heart, your heart, everybody's heart. And he also apparently searches the heart of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to know what's in the mind of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. He's not just a feeling or like a ghost-like Substance. He is a person with a mind and a heart and a will. So in verse 26, it says, He who searches hearts, that is God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So he searches the heart of the Spirit. He searches the mind of the Spirit. And then it says, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we have this wonderful interplay here that we get to see the intimacy of the, whole, of the Trinity. So we have God the Father searching out the heart and the mind of the Spirit. Of course, they are one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three in one, but they are also separate. And so we get this incredible glimpse inside the Trinity that the Father is searching out the heart and mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit, knowing the mind of the Father, knowing the will of the Father, knowing the heart of the Father, is interceding for the saints. The saints are is the people of God, believers in Jesus. The Spirit is interceding for us according to the will of God. Now, this is so amazing because when we don't know how to pray, we can simply ask the Holy Spirit to pray for us. We can come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I don't know how to pray. Maybe it's any of those options that we talked about just a couple minutes ago. My suffering is so deep that I cannot muster up any words. Or I've been praying for this for so long that I'm weary I'm tired of it, I can't do it anymore, or at least I can't do it today. Or maybe, Holy Spirit, I am so confused. There are all these different ways that I could pray about this situation and I don't know which one to pray about. In whatever case you find yourself in, and maybe you have so many different scenarios going on in your life and you feel like you fit into all these categories regarding different situations, You can simply ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, will you pray for me? Sometimes early in the morning, usually, usually it's early in the morning, you might find me in my prayer chair with a cup of coffee and I might Not even have any words running through my mind or my heart or off my lips. I often pray out loud. But I might in my heart and my mind and my mouth, it might all be quiet. I might have nothing going on. But it's still prayer time because I've asked the Holy Spirit to do the praying for me. And so I am just trying to empty my mind and close my mouth and let the Spirit Talk to the Father on my behalf. And what we're going to learn next week actually is that the Son, Jesus the Son, is also involved in this time of Trinitarian prayer, interceding on my behalf as well, because I don't have the words to say, I don't have the wisdom to know how to pray, but the Holy Spirit does. So let him, let him, when you don't know how to pray, tap into the power of Of the Holy Spirit and let Him do your praying for you. Now, I also want to say perhaps you've never done this. Perhaps you've never asked the Holy Spirit to pray for you. And what I want to encourage you to do is know that you can do that and you should. You should ask the Holy Spirit to pray for you when you don't have the words to say. But I also want you to know that you don't necessarily have to ask Him. The Holy Spirit is going to pray for you whether or not you ask Him to do it. Jesus the Son is going to pray for you whether or not you ask him to do it. And they are going to pray for you perfectly according to the will of God, with or without your permission. So the Holy Spirit is praying for you. If you're a believer in Christ and you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can just know he is praying for you. He does pray for you far more than we could ever imagine. We will probably never know the immense amount that the Holy Spirit has prayed on our behalf. All right, I want to go on to verse 28. In verse 28, Paul writes probably one of the most loved verses in the whole New Testament, probably the whole Bible, actually. And I would say that they are also, or this verse is also one of the most misunderstood or misquoted, misapplied verses in all of scripture. So we're going to talk about this for a little while. Now I'm going to read this out of the ESV because that is what I'm using as I teach through this Bible study. But as I read it, I want you to know that I do not agree with the way that the ESV translates this verse. I love the ESV Bible. I give great honor and thanks to those who have gone ahead and translated our Bibles. But I think in this verse, they have something wrong. And I'm going to explain what that is. All right. So here it is in verse 28, according to the ESV, the English standard version, it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So according to the ESV translation, what works for good? All things. It says all things work together for good. Well, okay, here's the deal. Sometimes things don't work out for good. We live in a broken world where there is sin and destruction and suffering, and sometimes things don't work out. That is just the way the world is. Many translations, however, including the NIV, translate Romans 8.28 like this. And we know that... That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So in this translation of this verse, what is doing the working for good? God is. It says, in, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So it's not saying that all things work out for good. It's saying that in all things... God works for good. That difference is huge because think about where we just came from. Last week and in the chunk of scripture right before this, Paul was just talking about the sufferings and the groanings of creation and of ourselves, our own suffering and our own groanings. In the chapter before that, chapter 7, he was talking about his own internal sin, if we look at it through the context that all of that stuff, all of it is going to work itself out, no, it's not. It's all not going to work itself out. But God can work it out. In all things, God, God can use all of the suffering. God can use our struggle with sin. God can use our past mistakes. God can take our mess and turn it into our message. God can work all things for good. And this verse says that we know. We know, not just we hope or we think, but we know that in all of this, all of the sufferings and struggles of our lives, God will work for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is the one who is working. Now, I always think it's a little bit disheartening to hear the end of that because it says that he works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I really believe that the heart of God is that he wants to work all things for good for all people. But God, in his love, for us has given us choice and he's given us free will. And it's just like a few weeks ago, we talked about the prodigal son and how he took his inheritance from his father and he went away and he squandered all of it. And the father was at home waiting for him to return. Our father is waiting for us to return to him. And when we do, he can take all of those experiences, all of the sin, all of the suffering, and he can work it for good. He can turn it around for good. But listen, if we don't come home to the Father, those situations are not going to work out. Life doesn't just magically work out. God is the one who works it out. So I believe that the heart of God is that he wants to work for good for all people. He loves, God so loved the world. But if we choose not to turn back towards him, if we choose not to love him in return, then God is not going to work all things together for good if we're not going to let him. He's not going to force his ways upon us. But he desires that we would come back home, come back to him so that he can work it all out. Now, in verse 29, it's very important that we find out, okay, ultimately, we've been talking for several minutes now about working all things together for good. In verse 29, we actually find out what is the good that God is working towards? I mean, is it just a good outcome on earth? Is it a good salary, a good job, a nice good picture of our life on earth? No, there is one singular good that God is working toward, And we need to read verse 28, which is what we just read, in the context of verse 29 as well, because this describes the good. And in verse 29, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. Okay, we're going to deal with the words foreknown and predestined in just a moment, as well as Jesus being the firstborn amongst many brothers. So there's a whole bunch of things here for us to talk about. But what I want to first focus on is it, it tells us what is that good that God is working towards. And it says, let me reread it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To be conformed to the image of his son. So, the good that God is working towards, when we say that God is working all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, the good that God is working toward is that we would be transformed, conformed into the image of Jesus. That is the good that God is working towards. Becoming like Jesus is our greatest good. The greatest outcome that my life will ever have is that the Holy Spirit is transforming me day by day to be like Jesus. That is the greatest good that can ever come from my life, is that I would represent Jesus. All right, now let's dig into a few of those other big words that we found in verse 29. Again, I'll, I'll just read it again. Paul writes, "For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn amongst many brothers." So let's look at the word "foreknew" and "predestined." We're going to get into some pretty deep theology here. Although I will encourage you to to look this up on your own, dig into this on your own. The question about what it means to be foreknown and predestined are questions that have uh, brought many theologians into wondering and prayer and discussion and disagreement for hundreds and thousands of years. (laughs) And so in the next 10 minutes on this podcast, I am not going to solve this at all. Um, But I will give you a, a little bit of information about the primary camps of theology on this, and then I will also let you know where I lean. But here's the deal. Even when I let you know which direction I lean in on this theology, if you lean the other way, you could give me many, many scriptures, and you could give me a really compelling argument for that direction of thought, and I would say, you're right. I totally understand what you're saying. It's a mystery in the Bible, and I can hear what you say and think, that is that is great. And then I will still probably lean the direction that I'm going to tell you I lean, but I'm super comfortable with the tension. It doesn't bother me at all that there is tension on this issue and that I don't think we will ever exactly know what it means that God has foreknown and predestined some or perhaps all. We don't know. Um, I'm very comfortable with that tension, so... I would love if you disagree with me and if you find a group of people to talk about this with and if you dive in and, um, and dig, dig for information on your own, I think that's so great. All right, so to be foreknown, the Bible talks about this in a couple different places. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul also talks about being foreknown, that the Father foren- has foreknown us and chose us in Christ before the creation of the earth. Another way that I heard the word foreknown described that I thought was really beautiful was that God was setting his affection upon his people before the world was made. That God set his affection upon you. I think that's really beautiful. And then predestined would mean that God preplanned for your life that you would be called unto Jesus that you would be predestined for salvation, like set aside in advance for salvation. Now, I want to share two main camps of theology on this, okay? The two primary camps of theology on this are known as Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism was developed by John Calvin. The theology was developed by John Calvin in the 1500s. Arminianism was developed by um Jacob Arminius, although John Wesley put a lot of, really formed it together as well. And, and that'll happen in the 1500s, 1600s as well. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing because on Calvinism, it has five points of Calvinism. I'll list them for you, but we're only going to talk about election. So the acronym that goes along with it is TULIP, and the T is for total depravity. That human beings are unable in of themselves to choose to choose Christ, basically. Um, the U is unconditional election, which is what we're going to talk about today, so I won't define that yet. The L is for limited atonement, and then Arminianism believes in unlimited atonement, that Jesus forgave the sins of all people when he died on the cross, not just the sins of the elect. The I stands for irresistible grace, uh, That that... The Calvinist would say that in his, his God's grace is so irresistible that if he calls to you in his grace for salvation, you cannot resist it. And then Arminianism would say, God calls all of us in his grace for salvation, and some reject it and some respond to it. And then the perseverance of the saints is the P of the tulip. Calvinism would say that once you're saved, you're always saved. Arminianism would say that you are saved by faith, and if you lose faith, then you can lose salvation as well. So I'm not going to go into all of this, but seriously, research it. It's great. It's great mental thinking. Pray through it. But because these verses bring up being foreknown and being predestined, it would be good for us to just address this today. And again, I will let you know kind of where I lean. So in Calvinism, they believe that God foreknew a certain elect that he elected some for salvation and everybody else for damnation and that those that he elected he pre- predestined that they they will be saved because his grace is irresistible, they will not be able to deny or resist his call on their lives and that he did this out of love and it's all through the grace of God because in our sin, A Calvinist would say, we are all deserving of damnation. But in God's incredible grace and love, he elected some for salvation, to save out of damnation. Arminianism would say that God has chosen all of humanity by his grace, and he calls us to respond to his grace. And he has given us God-ordained human will, free will, to choose to respond to his grace. So, and he already knows, so when it says the word foreknown, an Arminian mindset would say, well, God foreknows, he already knows who is going to choose to respond. He already knows who's going to respond to his grace, and he knows who will not respond to his grace. So the Arminian view is just saying God wants all to be saved. There's not a certain elect group. And then what I learned from my pastor as well is I went through all this and struggled through this. I go to a Lutheran church, a Lutheran brethren church uh, that I love so much. And I learned from my pastor that I did not know that actually Lutheranism provides like a third train of thought on all of this. And that was also developed in the 1500s. So all of this theology is very old. (laughs) Like I said, I'm not going to solve it today. But Lutheranism really provides a third option that really sits in the tension between Calvinism and Arminianism. Here's the deal. I'm going to lean Arminian. I just do. There are so many scriptures that speak directly to my heart that God desires all to be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God is not slow in keeping his promise, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to eternal life. That is is Second Peter 3.9. There, there's just so many scriptures that talk about God desiring all people to be saved that I do lean Arminian however there's also scriptures specifically in the book of acts but also throughout paul's letters there are splatterings of the word elect sometimes in the book of acts it'll say like all who were elected for salvation believed that day so i completely understand the tension and if if you're listening to this and you're like no she's wrong it's calvinism all the way look i get it (laughs) i get the tension and I'm comfortable with attention, and I am going to swing Arminianism. So, when it says that for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, I'm going to say God foreknew us all. He desires that all of us would be conformed to the image of his son. He knows in advance who is going to respond to his grace and who is going to reject his grace. He knows in advance who that will be. But he has he foreloves all of us. He forechose all of us. That's why he sent Jesus to die on the cross for all of us. And his desire is that all of us would be conformed to the image of his son, He ends this sentence in uh, Romans 8, 29. Paul ends this sentence by saying, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn amongst many brothers. I want to share with you what my Bible knowledge commentary says regarding this verse. I think it's really cool, super helpful. My Bible knowledge commentary says, The resurrected and glorified Lord Jesus Christ will become the head of a new race of humanity, purified from all contact with sin, and prepared to live eternally in his presence. As the firstborn, he is in the highest position among others. I just love that, that he will become the head of a new race of humanity. The whole race of humanity will be purified from sin and will live eternally in his presence jesus is the firstborn amongst many brothers that word in greek is adelphoi and it can be translated amongst many brothers and sisters the niv does that translates its many brothers and sisters and then to wrap up we're going to get to verse 30. romans 8 verse 30 those whom he predestined he also called and those he called he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Let's look at these words. Okay, we already looked at the word foreknown, meaning that God like foreloved us, loved us before the creation of the world, set his affection on us before the creation of the world, and then predestined us, pre-planned that we would be saved, that we would be with him unto eternity. Had that Planned out all the days written for us before any of them came to be. And then in the next word in verse 30 is called. So those whom he had foreknown, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he also called. He called to us out of his grace, beckoned us into his love, ushered us into the grace in which we now stand. He called, beckoned, invited, Through his Holy Spirit, he called to us. And those he called, he justified. He made us right. To be justified is to be made right with God. And that happens through the cross of the Lord Jesus. We are justified through faith in Jesus. None of our works are what justifies us. Whether or not we keep the whole Old Testament law perfectly, or if we are just so good at being a, Like doing everything right, Christian, if we're involved in everything at church that we could possibly be involved in, all of the community service we could do, look, none of that's going to justify us. None of that makes us right with God. It's good. Like those things are good to do. But the only thing that's going to make us right with God that's going to justify us is faith in Christ. It's simple. Faith in Christ is what justifies us, makes us right with God. He justified us through Christ. And those he justified, he glorified. Do you notice the the tense of that word? Whom he those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is past tense. I am standing here in my basement, in my joggers and a sweatshirt, with my hair and a ponytail. I'm very much in the flesh right now. <laughs> I am very much just in my normal everyday body. And here I am reading Romans 8, 30, and it says that I have been glorified. My glorification is not yet complete. In fact, we just read last week in Romans eight twenty five, or in the last episode, we read that we are hoping for what we do not see. The reason I don't see my glorification yet is because it's not complete yet. But when God looks at me, he sees it as complete. He sees it as past tense. There is a late theologian named James Denedy who says that this past tense usage of the word glorified is the most daring anticipation of faith in the entire Bible isn't that beautiful the most daring anticipation of faith god looks at us through christ and says you are glorified even though i'm still on earth in my joggers he looks at me and says you are glorified in ephesians chapter 2 paul writes that god the father has seated us with christ in the heavenly realms like he sees us as already seated with christ in the heavenly realms Our glorification is so certain in the eyes of God that he considers it past tense. Let me say that again. Our glorification is so certain in the eyes of God that when he looks at us, he considers it already done. He sees us as already glorified through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is amazing. So, dear friend, if you are a list maker, I want you to look at these words. If you're just listening to this and not able to open your scriptures right now, do it later. Look at Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. And you know what? Whether or not you agree with anything I said about Calvinism or Arminianism or Lutheranism, which sits right in the middle, here's what I want you to know. If you are a believer in Christ... You are foreknown. Check. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Check. You are called by God. Check. You are justified in Christ. Check. You are glorified through the Lord Jesus. Check. You can check them all off. It is a done deal. You don't have to work for any of this. It is a finished deal. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he really meant it is finished. You don't have to work for it. We just get to trust him. We simply get to trust him. And no matter where you fall on the theological issues of predestination... Perhaps the single most important thing we need to know about predestination is that we are predestined to be like Jesus. And certainly, when he comes, we will be transformed fully into his likeness, fully glorified in him. And it is so certain that God the Father looks at us and sees it as already done. Amen and amen. I hope you have an awesome day today. Thank you for joining me on the Seeking Pearls podcast.